836, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. So glad to have you with us. 42 degrees outside. We start off this program like we start off every program. Three big things. Things I think you need to know about for the day to discuss at the gym or at the coffee closet or the water cooler or at the lunch hour or just with your friends hanging out. Big thing number one. Explosive testimony yesterday um, in front of Congress, the white uh, where you had the House Intelligence Committee, and they were, were talking to FBI Director James Comey, who has used to always be said that, you know, just like just like children that are supposed to be seen and not heard, um, you know, FBI directors typically were supposed to be seen and not heard. Comey, of course, has injected himself willingly unwillingly, wittingly, unwittingly into politics. He was the guy that, of course, you know, came out, you know, during the campaign and initially cleared Hillary Clinton of any wrongdoing in connection with the various uh, server, her emails on servers. And then a couple weeks before the end of the campaign, he came out and said, well, we've got some new information. We're reopening the investigation. And then that ended up going nowhere. But he's managed to irritate everybody, Republicans and Democrats, Republicans upset with him that he came out and said, well, she did all these things wrong, but I'm not recommending charges. Democrats, when a couple weeks later, he says, we're reinstituting the investigation. So Comey, is very, very unpopular. In my opinion, the way he handled the situation back in the fall it was wrong because I didn't think he should have come out and made a statement clearing Hillary Clinton. And then having made the statement clearing Hillary Clinton, um, I think he felt obligated to go and say, well, there's a new investigation. I think he would have been just much better off letting the matters proceed like they typically proceed, which is where the Department of Justice speaks through its indictments, and if they don't return indictments, you don't say anything. But that's not the way Comey has chosen to do things. So anyhow, everybody knows the story now. There is this ongoing question as to whether or not members of the Trump campaign colluded with Russia in connection with the election. There is no secret, I think, that Vladimir Putin, the Russian dictator, hated Hillary Clinton. And I'm not sure Putin really likes Trump that well, but he hated Hillary Clinton. And and so I have no doubt that the the Russian government was trying to monkey with the electoral process. You had various leaks. You you had hacking that was going on. I believe that that. I don't think there's going to be any question that that's going to come back and be linked to, you know, people inside of Russia to the extent it hasn't been. And I have no doubt that the Russian government was trying to release information that might be compromising to the Democratic candidate. So, I mean, I believe that happened. That, however, is not the same as suggesting that Donald Trump or members of the Trump campaign colluded with the Russian government and in essence were in partnership with them in connection with the hacking. So far, there has been no evidence at all that has come forward suggesting that type of link. There are contacts between Trump, members of Trump's campaign, and people from Russia, which is not surprising because you have a lot of people that are associated with Donald Trump who are international business people. And it's not surprising that if you've got business interests somewhere in Eastern Europe or in Russia or whatever, that you are going to be interacting with people, including some people who are high up in the Russian government. So there's no doubt in my mind that there's interactions that you're going to find. But just because you've got somebody who is a businessman or businesswoman in New York who's trying to negotiate a deal, 
somewhere in Russia, and there's contacts back and forth between government officials or people who are associated with the government or whatever, that doesn't mean that there is collusion. Well, anyhow, into this entire background comes James Comey yesterday. And Comey is testifying before Congress. He says, again, as he said before, we have no evidence. The FBI was not involved in any sort of electronic surveillance of Donald Trump or his campaign associates during the course of the campaign. That's number one. But number two, he takes an extraordinary step yesterday of announcing that the FBI is investigating whether members of President Trump's campaign did, in fact, collude with Russia to influence the 2016 election. Now, this is extraordinary for a number of reasons. Most notably, FBI typically does not does not confirm the existence of investigations. When I was in the U.S. Attorney's Office, and the U.S. Attorney's Office is ultimately like the charging agency, you know, when you would get questions about, you know, is Hondo under investigation? The response was, we do not confirm or deny any particular investigations. You, You don't. But yesterday, in front of God and the world and under oath, the FBI director said, yeah, we we are investigating whether members of the Trump campaign colluded with Russia to influence the election. Now, this is, of course, even more significant because President Trump has always insisted that the, the that the Russia collusion story is fake news. And now you have the FBI director saying, hey, you know, we're, we're out here. There's a criminal investigation and, you know, we are going to pursue this no matter how long it takes. All right. Big thing. Number one, four, one, four, seven, nine, nine, one, six, twenty. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Here is my question. Do you believe there is a there there? Do you believe that members of the Trump campaign team? actually were involved, were in bed uh, with members of the Russian government or with Russians in an attempt to try to influence the election? Or is this or is this really fake news? Is this a smokescreen? Is this, this a distraction? And has the director of the FBI, well, once again, interjected himself in politics by commenting on an investigation without any evidence to believe that something happened. Do you believe that there's going to be some collusion here, or is this fake news? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss next. It's 843, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Okay, big thing number one. Uh, James Comey, the FBI director, says that uh, confirms that there is an investigation of Trump campaign personnel to see whether there's collusion with the Russians. This is this is extraordinary because typically the, the response to pending investigations is, you know, we, we don't confirm or deny this. But instead, Comey goes before the House Intelligence Committee and says, yes, we're, we're doing this and we're going to fully pursue these type of things. And, of course, this is a blow to the Trump administration because President Trump has for the longest time been saying that the whole Russia story is fake news. So 414-799-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right. Do you believe 
that there was collusion? Do you believe that this investigation is going to go anywhere, or is this just a witch hunt? Let's see. Um, Sam writes, it's time to get a new FBI director. He mishandled the Clinton email scandal, and now he seems to be on the same course um, with Trump. Seems all politically driven. Uh, John in Yorkville says testimony indicated some of Trump's associates had contact with Russians. And by the way, I don't I don't think there's any doubt about that. Some of some of Trump's associates have contact with Russians. Of course, they are. They are business people, and just because you have contacts with Russians doesn't mean that you're colluding to try to, you know, influence the campaign. It could mean that you're just trying to get a deal to get Pepsi-Cola or whatever into Russia. Anyhow, John writes, testimony indicated some of Trump's associates had contact with the Russians. We need to keep in mind Trump is an amateur politician. He's learning. I don't think he colluded. I just think he's learning a big uh, lesson. Couple other on our text line say, uh, if nothing is found, the FBI director definitely has to go. I think yesterday was a big deal. I will tell you this: I do not believe that they are going to come up with any evidence proving that there was any sort of direct collusion. Now, I know that's that's going to not going to satisfy a lot of people. I think what was happening during the Trump campaign is that you had Donald Trump. And the folks who were supporting Donald Trump, who were clearly sitting back and enjoying watching Hillary Clinton squirm. They were clearly enjoying that these, these various leaks that were coming out. And I have no doubt that from a campaign perspective, they were prepared either themselves or through operatives or surrogates or whatever to do whatever they could to exploit these various links. That is different though, than saying that they are the ones that are actually behind this or they're in bed with the people that are doing this. And I will tell you this, I will be stunned if there is any evidence that leads to that fact. That's why I think it was disappointing yesterday for the FBI director to come out under oath and make this different statements. He he said, I think it would have been much more prudent for him if he felt the need to articulate that there was an investigation, to also articulate what I think is the case right now, that so far there's been absolutely nothing, just like we haven't found anything to suggest that there was a wiretapping of Donald Trump by the FBI or by any other government agency, I think it would have been in his interest to also similarly say, well, you know, we're, we're doing this investigation, but we we have not been able to establish anything. Let's see again on our text line. I believe that most likely fake news, but find it very hypocritical and ironic that the wiretapping is viewed as something different. Mostly it's sad that both these topics are what dominate our news media. Um, yeah, yeah, yep, yep, yep. Um, there's no question about it. But this is this is the gotcha game that we end up playing now. Is it fake news or not? I, I don't know. Will there be criminal charges? I would be surprised. But now that the FBI director has thrown down the gloves in connection with this, if the investigation goes nowhere, I think he has an obligation to come out and just as publicly say, we have further, we've investigated this up, down, sideways, and we found no evidence to indicate that any of this happened, no actionable charges. That's now what he has to do if there turns out to be no charges. If there are, in fact, evidence that this crime has been committed, well, then you return indictments and you go from there. But this is, once again, the problem you have when an FBI director starts to comment on ongoing investigations in public. It's 8.52. Coming up next, big thing number two, a local story that the police need to get ahead of desperately. Stick around. 
854, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Jason Kidd and the Bucks are in Portland tonight to take on the Blazers. Voice of the Bucks, Ted Davis, has the call. He'll begin our coverage with Buck Shots. That's 840 this evening here on WTMJ. Big thing number two, a police shooting in Milwaukee can spiral out of control. Last Thursday night, there was a shooting involving West Dallas police, Milwaukee police, and the DEA. Um, about 6.30 at night, a man named Jermaine Claybrooks, 32 years old, with a record for drug dealing, was shot and killed near 19th and Stark um, by police. What happened is, um, this is what the police are saying, that Claybrooks, who was a convicted drug dealer, was the focus of a drug investigation involving these various agencies. It was an officer-involved shooting. It happened when undercover officers tried to arrest him on Thursday evening. Witnesses say a police SUV bumped his car, knocked his car into a a tree. The car began smoking. The tires were still spinning. Police say as they tried to arrest Clay Brooks, he was observed to be armed with a handgun. At, at this point, shots were fired. He was, in fact, armed. I mean, I think they verified, I, I, I believe at least some of the family members are questioning this, but I believe there was, a, there was a firearm on his person. He was a felon. I don't know if this was a drug deal gone bad. Don't exactly know. But the, the family and friends are, are out there, and they're saying this guy was executed. He, he was never given a chance to surrender. These were not uniformed police officers at first. You had undercover police officers. They banged into a tree. Um, lots of questions about this. No comment as to how many bullets were fired and things like that. And the family and friends, while acknowledging the guy has a criminal record and acknowledging that might not be you know the most upstanding guy, the point is we don't have the death penalty for being a drug dealer. Now, I don't know what happened, and I take no position on what happened. But the latest development is, as always happens in this situation, there is now a cell phone video that is out. And it looks like, I mean, I watched the cell phone video this morning. It looks like it's taken from a witness um, who appears to be like on a second floor about I don't know, two or three houses down from the incident. And, again, you don't want to prejudge this, but you see the car being rammed into the tree. You don't see, and it's got tinted windows and things like that, and you see a number of officers, undercover officers, coming out, and they start firing. You don't see the man who is shot getting out of the car. You don't see him brandishing the firearm. You don't, again, know what it was that caused these multiple police officers to open fire. So I am not prejudging this at all. I am telling you, though, that, again, looking at this video raises questions in my mind about what happened. And it's entirely possible that this was a perfectly legitimate shooting. And again, I'm not prejudging this, but the police have been noticeably quiet about the details and the circumstances surrounding this. And now with this video emerging, candidly, it raises more, in my mind at least, it raises more questions than it answers. 
including, you know, why why were was all this shooting done into into the car? The guy was not getting out of the car. Don't know if he was given an opportunity to get out of the car. Um, don't know if he understood that these were police as opposed to other drug dealers that were might trying to rob that were trying to rob him. I don't know any of those questions, and I'm not going to say it's a bad police shooting. But I will tell you, this video that now has surfaced is going to go viral, and there's going to be a lot of people who are going to be looking at this, asking very, very difficult questions like, why was it necessary to shoot in this fashion? My advice would be, first of all, people want to calm down and wait till the facts emerge. Secondly, though, this is something that I think the police department, that the DEA, that the you know high-intensity drug unit, they need to get ahead of. And you need to get ahead of it quickly because if you don't answer some of these questions quickly as to what happened, well, a lot of people are going to draw their own conclusions, which may or may not be accurate. So big story number two, this shooting um, last Thursday of the alleged drug dealer video is now emerging. If you get a chance to watch the video, it will raise questions in your mind. And again, I'm not accusing the police of making a bad shooting, but um, they need to get ahead of this one and explain exactly what happened and why it was necessary to shoot into the vehicle as they did. It's 859. Big thing number three is coming up. If you live in Milwaukee County, how do you feel about paying even more in taxes? We'll discuss. Glad to have you with us. Big thing number three. Milwaukee County voters, if like if you like me, live in Milwaukee County on April 4th, there is going to be an advisory referendum asking if you support a $60 county wheel tax to help pay for bus transit service and road and bridge repairs. Now, if you received, if you live in Milwaukee County and you just recently received like I did, your auto registration to up your registration for another year, you noticed that, gee, there's an extra charge. There's an extra 35, there's an extra $30 charge that is already on the auto registration fee. Now, this is, of course, if you live in the city of Milwaukee, you also have to pay an extra $25, and this is on top of the, what is it, the 70 bucks that you pay the state. So there's already a $30 increase. There is now a wheel tax that was jammed through by the county board and approved by the county executive. County executive Chris Abley is not happy that the wheel tax is only $30. He instead wants it doubled. He wants a $60 wheel tax. And so there is an advisory referendum which would now ask voters' opinions as to whether or not the wheel tax that it just put in at $30 should now be doubled. It's only advisory. Abley says, regardless of what the outcome is, he's going to continue to push to double the newly instituted wheel tax. Um, He acknowledges that if this goes down to defeat, it might make it a little bit politically harder, but Abley thinks we need 60 bucks. A number of people in county government are silently, well, at least behind the scenes, are predicting that this advisory referendum is going to pass. In other words, they believe that the majority of people are going to say, yes, we we know you just put in this $30 wheel tax, but we agree that that's not enough, and we want to double it. 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right. Should Milwaukee County, which just put in a $30 wheel tax, just put it in, should that wheel tax now be doubled? 
increased to $60, which if you live in Milwaukee County, let's see, it's $70 for the state. If it went to 60, 70, and 60, that would be 130. And then if you happen to live in the city of Milwaukee, which is also in Milwaukee County, you would be paying, what, north of $150 for the privilege of keeping your car in the city. All right. Like I say, a lot of people in county government seem to believe that this referendum is going to pass because actually it's for the bus service. 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. What do you think about doubling the just past $30 Milwaukee County wheel tax. Let me start off the discussion by saying, given all, you, you pay, the, given the property taxes in Milwaukee County and the communities around here, given the fact that it is very expensive to live here to begin with, you know, what is going to happen, seriously, if we start saying, all right, 60 bucks to keep a car in Milwaukee County, another 25 on top of that for the privilege of keeping that same car in the city of Milwaukee, do you really get to a point where people say enough is enough? Or as people like Chris Abley are already thinking, is it, well, all right, it's $30 already. People aren't going to notice that 30 bucks. What's another 30 bucks on top of that? We'll be able to slide this through. Nobody's really going to care. Well, I don't know. I care. How about you? 414-799-1620. Randy in Cudahy. Randy, you're first. Good morning. Good morning. Well, at least they're thinking ahead because they're going to have to pay for the streetcar somehow, some way. Yep. Well, they're going to have to. They're going to have to pay operating. The city is going to have to come up with um, the operating costs on Correct. on this. Um, yeah. So I mean, right. Plus, plus, of course, you got to keep in mind that the the trolley. And, and Tom Barrett makes no uh, illusions about this. I mean, his grand plan is to start expanding the trolley, run this all over. You've got, you know, Abley, who's already behind tearing up Wisconsin Avenue and Blue Mound Avenue to put in a high-speed bus line. Um, yes, I mean, there. this is money that will, I think, clearly go to help those operating costs as well. But what the heck, Randy? It's only an extra 30 bucks on top of the 30 you already just have to pay. Yeah, I mean, I totally oppose. I'm being sarcastic it's just ridiculous um thanks to call no i mean it is i it, it th- thanks i mean i just at some point in time the question becomes do people in milwaukee county taxpayers get sick of trying to be treated like turnips that are being squeezed and squeezed and squeezed and at some point in time do people start to say you know what i like living in milwaukee county but i can move to ozaki county and this is not going to happen. I can move to Waukesha County or Washington County, and this stuff does not go on. And I don't have to worry about as many of the crime problems as I have. Now, look, I understand. Maybe you're looking there saying, okay, Jeff, what's the big deal? What's 30 bucks? You know, what's 60 bucks? But if you have two or, heaven forbid, like three cars in your house, because maybe you, know, you and your spouse both need cars to get back and forth from work, and maybe you've got some teenage kids, so there's a third car. I mean, you're starting to talk about... Some significant change. I mean, right now, $30 wheel tax on three cars, that's an extra 90 bucks. You double that like Abley wants to, that's $180 a year on top of what your other expenses are. Let's talk to Tom in Germantown. Tom, you're on 620 WTMJ. Hi. Um, my thing is, I have friends that live in the city but have houses in other counties and, you know, up north homes or whatever, and they um, they register their cars there so they don't pay the wheel tax. Um. Yes. 
yeah, right. Because I mean, I mean yeah. Why wouldn't you? Right. Well, 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 exactly. I mean, now, I mean, you know, you're you're not supposed to lie about where your your principal residence is, but sure. I mean, I I get it. If you've got another place and you're spending time there, um, wh- why just contribute that money if you don't have to? I mean, Tom, do you think uh, the, the big argument in able it, it's it's only thirty dollars, it's only sixty dollars. I mean, at some point in time, does that dough start to add up? Oh, absolutely, especially with multiple cars. And, and if you're in the city, it's another 25 on top of that, right? Uh, right, exactly. So. Right, all for the privilege of, of having the car. No, thanks. To, I mean, and, and here here is the other thing, and I it's one of the things I'm, I'm surprised that we don't hear more about. But, of course, the, the media around here, whether it's the Journal Sentinel or, or a lot of the politicians, you know, they they, they want this money. They, they've never seen a tax that they do not like, so they're behind this. But these wheel taxes, and this is the point I've been trying to make all along, are about as regressive as they come. What is a regressive tax? A regressive tax is one that disproportionately hits poor people. All right, look, here, here is the reality. I live in Milwaukee County. I own two cars. All right, the, the idea of did, did I cringe a little bit when I got the renewal thing for the, the car and I see that there's now a $30 you know, wheel tax that's put on? Yes, I, I cringed a little. I grumbled a little bit about it. But the truth of the matter is I can afford it. I'm at that point in my life where that's not going to change my lifestyle to come up with $30 or if they double it to come up with 60, although at some point in time you're going to get the straw that breaks the camel's back and people are going to leave. But but regardless, I, I could afford 30 bucks. I could afford 60 bucks. It doesn't change my lifestyle. A regressive tax, though, is what about the people that are living paycheck to paycheck? What about the people that really are struggling, you know, trying to figure out, okay, where am I going to get the money to pay for, you know, the utility bills this month? Where am I going to get the money to, uh, again, pay for what, whatever? And, and all of a sudden, out of the clear blue, you tag them with an extra $60 tax, or if you live in the city of Milwaukee, where a lot of people do, who probably don't have a lot of dough, that's another $25 on top of that. So you're saying to somebody who needs that car to try to get to work, who's or working two jobs and you're know, right at the poverty level, you know, Tom Barrett and Chris Abley are saying, okay, we expect you, in addition to what you're paying the state, we expect you to pay us an extra 30 60 25 85 bucks for the privilege of having this car. Now, maybe the, the big plan is you, you make it so expensive to drive that a lot of those people who are like um, more of the dem- uh, economically challenged people, they just simply say, okay, that you've, you've made it too expensive to drive a car, so we'll give up the car and we'll take the bus. You know, maybe that's part of the overall plan, but how is that, how, how does that help? You know, lower economic people from lower economic levels. If the government helps try to make it too expensive for them to drive a darn car, Dustin in West Bend. Dustin, you're at six twenty WTMJ. Hey, good morning. Good morning. Um, well, you know, I listen to the show almost every day. And Thank I, you. The the thirty dollar thing just passed, and when they tried to pass the thirty dollar thing, they were going for sixty then. Right. And it and it didn't go through. Right. So why are they bringing this up again? Well, Nobody because wa- yeah. Nobody wanted it then. You know, the the people weren't in favor of it, so why does he got to keep pushing it? It's just... Well, be, well, well, right. I mean, and see, and, and keep in mind, this is just an advisory referendum. But, but Abley, Abley says, hey, I don't care what the results of this are. I'm going to try to continue to push it. But I, I think what they are hoping is that a majority of people in Milwaukee County go and say, hey, I am a duck. 
pluck me, take another thirty dollars and make it sixty bucks. Now, I mean, I I don't know. I, I I look at some of the stuff that goes on in Milwaukee County, and I wonder. But I mean, my God, if if this advisory uh, referendum doesn't go down seventy thirty, I you know, are, have we lost our minds here in Milwaukee County? That sure seems like it to me. I'm <laughs> glad I don't live there. That's for sure. Well, well thanks for going. I mean, I, again, it, it's. I remember. I just. Okay, 30 bucks is not life-changing for me. It, it's just not. But when I got that registration thing for one of my cars last month, and I'm seeing that now there's this added 30 bucks onto it, it just, I, I sit there and, and grumble. I feel like, all right, it, it's like, all right, it, Milwaukee County is not taking enough money in property taxes. They're not taking enough money in taxes for the schools, and that's fine. I don't, I, I, I don't mind supporting the school system at all. But now it's just like we're just going to like stick that extra. We're going to poke you in the eye just a little bit more because we want the thirty bucks. But again, like I say, for me, thirty bucks, okay. I don't like paying it, but I can do it. But for a lot of people out there, how in the world can these legislators even consider doing this? Dave in Milwaukee. Dave, you're at six twenty WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning. I agree with you a hundred percent. It's you get the registration now. What? more money and you move on and it will affect the poor people in the city who do need that transportation right but part of this in my opinion underlying statement they're doing their best to get the people out of the city of milwaukee out of their cars yes. they want to support the buses they want it there is a statement here and they're going to keep pushing and pushing to make you see oh you don't need your car anymore yes. you can ride the rail you can ride the bus Right. Get, get, take the tr- right. Take take the trolley, and we're going to make take the trolley. It's going to be a yearly event where they're going to raise this tax. Right, and 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 we're also at the same time we're going to tear up major roads. We're going to take Blue Mound Road and Wisconsin Avenue. We're going to remove lanes of traffic to put in dedicated bus lanes. So if you try to drive, you're going to be caught in so much traffic that you're just going to get frustrated. We're going to try to force you into public transportation. I mean, I hate to go down this conspiracy theory, but I'm with you, Dave. I think that's one of the things that's going on. It's 100% what they're doing to you. And again, it's not going to affect me. But after a while, I'm in the suburbs of Milwaukee County. I'm getting tired, getting squeezed. And sooner or later, I love where I live. I don't want to move. But sooner or later, you get to the point going, this county's not respecting me or doing anything for me. I'm out of here and I, I can move. Yeah. So they better pay attention to this, but watch and see. You're going to get another wheel tax. You're going to get another tax on your automobile. There's probably going to be taxes for your drive. They just they want you out of your cars. They, they do, and, and they're and they're thanks to call, and they're willing to use tax policy as a way of doing that. So it's an advisory referendum. It's going to be on the ballot April fourth. If if it goes down, if voters reject it. Chris Abley says he's still not giving up on trying to get into your pockets. If voters somehow approve it, though, I'm telling you, it's going to be Katie bar the door. This is going to be a green light for sticking it to taxpayers in Milwaukee County, making you wonder more and more when the last person who can get out of Milwaukee County, who has that choice, who can say like Dave says, hey, I, I love living I love living in Wauwatosa. I don't know where he lives, but I live in Wauwatosa. But you know what? I can, I can move 25 blocks west. I'm still in a really nice neighborhood, and I'm in Waukesha County where they're not sticking me with this. I'm in Washington County where they're not sticking me with this. At some point in time, people start to vote with their pocketbooks. And I understand we're only talking about 30 or $60, but but it's one thing after another. And county government, the clown car act that is Milwaukee County government, doesn't get it. 922, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. 
925, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Let me just share with you our, our, our text line. And, and this is, we, we put this in about two weeks ago. Um, it, it's our Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. So now you can call the program and participate, but you can also text. And um, it's just another way to participate. Um, our text line just just exploded. Let me just share with you some of the things that, that we're getting. Here's uh, Dana in Milwaukee. This is why people move. And, of course, we're talking about, uh, again, the continued push to – they just added a $30 wheel tax to Milwaukee County. Um, now that they want to up it to another 30 to $60. Dana in Milwaukee writes, this is why people move. I can live 10 minutes from where I do now and have a greater property value, lower property taxes, lower car insurance, pay half as much to register my car, and have a better school system. This is just one more thing to drive people out of, mod- of moderate income – out of the city. Carol in Menominee Falls writes, Outrageous. My 21-year-old can barely afford her car insurance plus registration fees. There will be even more cars driving with expired plates on top of no insurance, too. I'm totally against this. She is exactly right. Another text. If you have personal plates, they add another $25. Mitch in Sturgeon Bay writes, The rest of us out here are in awe of what you people in Milwaukee put up with. You people are really getting screwed. You need a local tax revolt. Well, we had one, and apparently it, it didn't work. Uh, another text, just another confirmation that moving out of Milwaukee was the right thing. Here's another. Hey, Jeff, keep taxing Milwaukee County so the roads are smooth when I drive through from Racine County. Uh, yes. Uh, Jeff, can you imagine what it'll be like when they put bus lines on Blue Mound Road and then they redo the freeway from 68th East that is supposed to be an alternate? Um, yes. Another text. I'm on a fixed income. It's becoming more difficult to live in Milwaukee County. The wheel tax is totally unnecessary. When will a- when will Abley and the county board support citizens paying their wages? Yeah, that's that's it. If you live on a fixed income, senior citizen, for example, and and you have that car, well, all right. Um, you apparently again, you are one of the sponges that the county board wants to decide to try to figure out how to squeeze. Go figure. Nine twenty seven. Jeff Wagner. It's 934, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. As health care reform takes center stage in Washington, John McCure talks with U.S. Congressman Glenn Grothman at 420 today during Wisconsin's afternoon news. Hey, a program note to that effect. Um, Thursday morning, uh, at some point in time on Thursday, there the, the prediction right now is the House of Representatives is going to vote on the Obamacare replacement repeal thing. And, of course, the schedule is fluid and could change. But that's supposed to be at least a lot of people are saying it's going to be Thursday. Thursday morning at 1145, we have made arrangements to talk to the Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan. So that's um, that always, I guess, subject to change depending on what's going on. But right now we're uh, scheduled to talk to Paul Ryan 1145 on Thursday. And, again, Thursday could be an historic day because uh, that may be the day that at least the House votes on whatever version of the Obamacare replace and repeal bill is, is before them. Okay, um, last week you had the 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 breath the breathless story by Rachel Maddow. We've got Donald Trump's tax returns from 2005, and of course, then it took 20 minutes to get into it. And she had high ratings that night. Her ratings have, have plummeted since then. Um, she still finished up for the week, but that's because she had this huge number on Tuesday. A lot of people, I think, felt that deceived, but. Okay, so Trump's 2005 tax return showed that he made 150 million. He paid 
38 million, uh, but that includes his payroll tax. He paid about 35 million dollars in in actual income taxes, and nobody, I don't think anybody was appalled by that. Oh, that kind of sounds right. He, he made a lot of money. He paid a lot of money. Immediately, some of the detractors, though, as people were trying to figure out, okay, what can we do to try to bring down Trump? One of the first things people said is, well, you know, Donald Trump. He opposes the AMT, the alternative minimum tax, and if it wasn't for the alternative minimum tax, he would have paid a lot less. The alternative minimum tax, AMT, is something that, interestingly enough, is hated by a lot of people. Republicans don't like it. A lot of Democrats don't like it either. And if you ever get caught in the AMT trap, as I have been for a long time, you, you, you understand why you hate it. The alternative, the history of the alternative minimum tax, it goes back to 1969. Now, in 1969, if you made $19,000, you were in the top 5% of all earners. $19,000, you were in the top 5%. And so what happened is they, they had... They were taking testimony, and they found out that there were 155 taxpayers who made like a half million dollars in income. This is back in 1969. Again, where if you make 19000 you were in the top 5% of all earners. So they made like half a million dollars, which translates into $1.3 million today, and they were able to avoid income tax liability by using – deductions and, and loopholes, quote-unquote, you know, whatever, however you want to define loopholes. And voters got incensed. So what they did was Congress created this alternative tax system, which you have the regular tax system that allows you to deduct things, and then you've got the alternative minimum tax, at which point over certain income levels you start to lose d- deductions. And it was intended as a way to snare the, the, the millionaires and more who weren't paying any sort of taxes at all. Well, the way it has evolved over the years, again, it was targeted originally like at 155 high-income taxpayers. Now there are, well, four to five million people a year who pay taxes who get caught up in the alternative minimum tax. And the estimates are that there's almost 10 million people who are, in danger of getting caught in this tax. And it's not people who are making five or ten million or a million dollars a year. It's in many cases people who are, you know, making a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. You know, maybe it's a husband and a wife and you know both of you got good jobs, you're each pulling in a six figure salary, you're over two hundred thousand dollars and you live in a high tax state. That's where if you live in a state like Wisconsin where you pay a lot in state income taxes, um, you, you there's a decent chance that you're going to get snared by this alternative minimum tax because, again, it, it starts to limit your deductions over a certain income level. So if you've got – I mean, what are the two big deductions that people have as a general rule? It's going to be your state taxes – it's going to be your um, property taxes, so you live in a high property tax state a- as well, and you know pretty soon, you know it's not people that are making five hundred thousand dollars or a million dollars. It's people who are making two hundred thousand dollars, which all of a sudden find themselves losing their deductions and paying more and more and more. So 
Bernie Sanders doesn't like the alternative minimum tax. Republicans don't like it. Um, the argument was, well, if it wasn't for the alternative minimum tax, Donald Trump would have paid a, a lot less. But this is one of the chances. And I think once we get around to looking at tax policy, you know, people are going to take a real hard look at whether we do away with this. Now, I understand that for a lot of people, if, if you don't, you know, if, if you're not in that situation where you're making the 200 grand or, or more, you're, you, why, do, why do you care about this? But, but you need to care about it to an extent because maybe you're close to that. Like I say, there's 10 million people, those are the estimates, who are, are close to being impacted by the alternative minimum tax. And this idea that people who are making a couple hundred thousand dollars a year are the idle rich, the equivalent of multimillionaires in two thousand back in nineteen sixty nine who don't pay their fair share. I just I reject it. All right, just one segment. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. The alternative minimum tax, and like I say, I understand it's kind of this complicated thing and I also understand it doesn't it, it only impacts a relatively small number of people. If you want to say ten million people, it is a small number. But it's one of these things where I think it is extremely I, – I think, to me, you can argue about what middle class is. But I will tell you, I think somebody who's making a, – a couple who are making $200,000 a year, for example, which, you know, could be – you know, it could be people, you know, the one of the spouses is a teacher, you know, one is a school administrator. The idea that they are they are wealthy to be treated like, I don't know, like the Rockefellers of the world. I just don't think that that's what the alternative minimum tax was ever intended for. And that's why I think it needs to go. Now, what you replace it with. All right. Because you're going to lose out on a lot of revenue. You know, that's another subject. But I think it needs to go. And to the extent Trump pushes this, I think he's right. Or to the extent it needs to, it doesn't need to go, it needs to be modified to say, okay, we're really only going after the highest income earners. But the problem is a lot of the highest income earners, they've got all sorts of things that they can do anyways to avoid tax liability. This is an upper middle class tax snare. 414-799-1620, that is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think the alternative minimum tax needs to go. It's 942. Um, We're back to discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 946. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. You know, when when we had this, like, breathless reporting of Donald Trump's 2005 taxes, it turned out to be kind of a nothing burger. I I was waiting to see, okay, what's going to be the hook for the people who don't like Trump? And then it's, well, you know, he's against the alternative minimum tax, the AMT. And, you know, if, if... if it hadn't been in place, look how little that he would have paid. And I'm going, oh, I hate this because almost everybody hates the alternative minimum tax. It was something that might have been relevant in 1969 when you had 150 people who didn't pay any taxes at all on big incomes. But now what's happened is it's hitting people in the upper middle class, people who don't think of themselves as you know millionaires, people who aren't millionaires, people who are, okay, maybe you, know, you and your spouse have a decent job, but you're already paying through the nose in taxes particularly if you live in a high-tax state. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, don't let the fact that, you know, this is Donald Trump is pushing it. Don't use this as an excuse not to get rid of this thing. Bob in Delafield. Bob, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning. How are you doing today? Real well, thank you. Although talking about this gets me irritated, I admit. (laughs) Yeah, it gets me irritated, too. But just to give you a simplistic example, and this uh, happens to be an individual in the state of Minnesota. Now, the state of Minnesota's taxes 
are somewhat higher than Wisconsin. So if the effective rate in Wisconsin is somewhere around 6 and Minnesota is 9. Okay. And then their property taxes are similar, although in some areas uh, they're a little bit higher. So anyway, in this example, the individual finally gets to make some money, around 300000 Well, he gets hit in the last year when I did his calculations of a $60,000 tax bill. 10000 of it is alternative minimum tax because right. his tax figure being sales tax, I mean his income tax and property taxes, or $26,000, we have to recompute it because of that number. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, But this is the best part of it. Is so then he goes through and goes, oh, my God. So a friend of his who's just got a promotion and saying, God, I finally got some extra money. I'm going to make about $250, $300. He said, well, you're going to have that other tax. He said, what are you talking about? Yeah. And he goes, oh, I'm not going to have to pay that. He said, yes, you are. Yep. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Welcome. Exactly. I mean, and, and there's no way. I mean, thanks to call Bob. And, there, and there's no way of. There's no way of getting around it. Okay. I mean, I, I mean, I, I've been hit for with this for for years, predominantly because of my late wife's income. And like, all right, after she passed away last year, I'm sitting down with the accountant. And I'm thinking, okay, what can we do to manage this type of thing? And you know, can I should I raise deductions or whatever? Because obviously, my income situation has changed dramatically. And it's like, nope, it just you, you can't get around this. And I understand the idea of making millionaires. Pay their fair share. I, I get all that, but at the same time, that's not who is getting caught up in the alternative minimum tax. The alternative minimum tax is nailing people, um, again, who live in high-tax states, who are our upper-middle class, who aren't the people flying around on, on Learjets, but rather are the people that you're paying your property taxes, you're paying your state income taxes, you're giving money to charity, and in many cases you're getting surprised. Sam writes, hey, Jeff, here's the answer. It's called the flat tax or the fair tax. Everyone pays their fair share. That, however, would put a lot of CPAs and tax preparation forms, um, along with the Democratic Party, out of work. Well, I mean, what what we need to do is we need to look at an overall revamping of the tax system. And again, I'm not anti-tax. I think we all need to pay a fair share to support the government and support the government services. I actually think people at the lower end of the income scale need to pay taxes as well because I think it's bad for a country if you get into a situation where, you know, you have people who just aren't invested who don't who are who you know are net takers i think it's important for everybody to contribute again according to their ability to pay and i also appreciate that people at the higher income scale you know have an obligation to pay and you know the way the tax system is set up in general that that's that's how it works but this alternative minimum tax thing is just it, it's absolutely a killer i think for that upper middle class and the longer it goes, the longer it goes and the longer it stays in effect, I think the more fundamentally unfair it becomes. Now, again, you can argue what the middle class is, and we've talked about this on this program before. You know, an ongoing debate is somebody that makes $50,000, you know, in the middle class. Is somebody that makes $100,000 in the middle class? Where where exactly is that? But I'm here to tell you, my guess is there's a lot of two there's a lot of families where you have both the husband and the wife who have good jobs, who consider themselves to be the pinnacle of the middle class, who are now getting caught with that alternative minimum tax. It's 951 Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ.
954, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Martin Schreiber spent most of his life in the public eye, including being Wisconsin's governor in the late 70s. Now, however, he has a very different role as caregiver to his wife suffering from Alzheimer's. Schreiber talks about his journey in the WTMJ conversation section of the WTMJ mobile app. The NBA realizes it has a problem. And this is I, a number of years ago. My brother's law firm used to buy season tickets to the Bucks game. This is back when Herb Cole was the owner. And as a matter of fact, their seats were about three rows behind where Herb Cole sat. Really good seats. And what I would do is I would buy a pair at four tickets. I would buy two tickets to, you know, maybe eight or ten of the games, you know, and, and these were, this is back, I mean, I think these tickets were like $125 a piece, and this is this is back several years, so Lord knows what they cost now. So you're talking two tickets, 250 bucks. it's $20 or whatever they charge to park, plus a couple $8 beers, plus if you go out to dinner beforehand, you're, you're easily talking a, you know, a $300 plus dollar evening. Now, for those same seats, I'm sure it's a lot more. And well, what happened is it wasn't just that the Bucks weren't a very good team back then, but it's it, you'd go to these games, and you drag yourself out on a on a cold Tuesday in January, where all you really want to do is is be at home. But you'd go to the game, and you'd expect well, at least I'm going to see a good game, or I'm going to see all these great NBA players. I love basketball, and well, what happened is it, the, the the teams. The stars wouldn't play for whatever reasons. They weren't hurt. It was just that they were they were being they were being rested. They'd sit, and I I understand. I'm sitting there as somebody who paid for these tickets, thinking, "Hey, I'm getting ripped off. I came to see Michael Jordan or whoever, and he's not playing. And it's, he's hurt. He's not hurt. He's just not playing." Well, this is really um, hitting home now. A um, couple weeks ago, Golden State Warriors, who were going to be on an ABC game on a Saturday night against San Antonio, big TV game, um, they sat. They're four stars, Stephen Curry, uh, Clay Thompson, Draymond Green, and Andre um, Iguodala. They, they sat. They didn't play them. They weren't hurt. They just decided to rest them. All right. Uh, the next week, Cleveland is on ABC again on Saturday, a featured game playing the Los Angeles Clippers. They sit LeBron James, Kyrie Irving, and Kevin Love. They sit their stars, not because they're hurt. They just want to give them a rest because they're the big picture. They're trying. They don't care about winning a particular game. They care about trying to do well in the season. So they rest. So everybody that tunes into these ABC games thinking they're going to see the stars, they don't see them. But at least when you tune into TV and the stars aren't playing, you haven't paid anything. Imagine being somebody that shelled out, you know, two hundred bucks or a hundred bucks or whatever each ticket. This is the chance. The Cleveland Cavaliers are coming to town. This is your chance to see LeBron James. Here, kids, we're going to get tickets. I know this is going to you know, hurt our, but we're, we're going to spend $100 a piece. I'm going to take you to see the, these players. And then they sit. And then they sit. Um, the coaches don't care because, again, an individual regular season game, they, they don't care. But um, the, the fans do. Now, um, Ron Silver, who Adam Silver, who's the NBA commissioner, you know, he's – he recognizes this is an issue. I mean, the says, WTMJ five-day forecast for the balance hey, of this. Okay, Tuesday. why is that coming out, Jane? What are we doing here? Okay, all right. Jane says she hit the wrong button. That's okay. I punch the wrong button all the time. That is only why. That's why they only let me hit three buttons. Um, anyways, Ron Silver, who Adam Silver, who is the NBA commissioner, recognizes there's a problem, and he says, "Look, we we." This we have to do something about this. We can't allow this to happen because it is it's a betrayal of of the fans, not just the people that are watching on TV. But you know how do we how do we tell the average fan 
come to the BMO Harris Bradley Center. You know, come see the greatest basketball players in the world if there's a decent chance that the greatest basketball players in the world on any given night simply aren't going to play. Now, I think part of the thing is what the teams are doing, like what Cleveland did and what Golden State did, is is they sit all the star players out at once. So essentially you're playing kind of like the JV team. If you go and Steph Curry isn't going to play, but the other stars are going to play, well, okay, maybe you'd be willing to look the other way. But, of course, from the coach's perspective, they're like, well, we sit everybody out at once, and if we end up throwing this particular game, and I don't mean throwing in this sense of a fixed game, but so we lose this one game, that that's better, then we'll bring them back. But this is a huge issue because, again, when you've got the type of money the NBA charges to go see games – and they say, hey, we've got this great product. And simply because of coaches' decisions, you don't put the stars out on the court. Pretty soon, people are going to start saying, why do I shell out money to go to the game? I'll watch it on TV. And if the stars don't play, I'll just go watch Pawn Stars or something on the History Channel. Huge issue. And the NBA coaches are making it a lot more difficult. But it's one of the reasons I gave up NBA tickets a long time ago. It's 959. Jeff Wagner. It's 10.08. This is Jeff Wagner. So very glad to have you with us. Voter participation in this country varies depending on election to election. When you have a contested presidential race, you will have you know high voter turnout. But by high voter turnout, I'm talking about, I don't know, 55, 60 percent of the electorate. In an election like we've got coming up on, on April 4th, what uh, what is it? Two weeks, two weeks from today, um, you're, you're going to have you know very very low voter turnout. There's uh, the election we've got on the ballot two two weeks from now. Uh, the only contested, I believe, statewide race statewide race would be for state superintendent of schools. There is a state supreme court race, but um, Annette Ziegler, who is just an absolutely brilliant justice, she's running unopposed. So um, the, the the left couldn't come up with a challenger to her, but that's fine. She's she's just a great justice. But and then you're going to have local races and things like that. But for two weeks from now, I, I don't know what the turnout is going to be statewide. I'll, I'll wait to see the estimates from the election commission, but 25%, you know, m- maybe a little bit more. But uh, again, there's some elections that more people vote in. But we don't come close to having universal voting. Uh, lots of people just simply decide that they are going to stay home. That is unlike some countries where voting is mandatory. You are required to do this. Now, this is the segment of the program that I call Dealer's Choice. We do this this time every day. It's a topic that I find maybe it's not the most significant issue of the day, but it's something that interests me as as a talkable sort of topic, and I'm really curious as to your reaction. Now, I bring this up because Albany, New York, which is the the state capital of, of New York State, There is a Democratic legislator who has introduced a bill which would make voting compulsory. All eligible voters would be required to turn in a ballot, even if they don't actually vote for anyone. So, I mean, you you would have to. Again, you know, you can I guess it's you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. You know, you you would have to 
that they wouldn't force you to actually, you know, check off a box to say, you know, who you're voting for for governor. But you would have to actually go and cast a ballot, even though that ballot would be empty. And the penalty, if you chose not to vote, you would be hit with a $10 fine. Now, the the legislator, the woman who's trying to push this, says the purpose would be to boost voter participation rates because she argues, well, even though you don't have to vote, if you have to turn in a ballot, the vast majority of people who do that are, in fact, going to vote. Um, they're going to choose somebody. Mandatory voting, this is the argument, would drastically increase civic participation and transform the political arena by making politicians more reflective of the constituents that elected him. The proposal would not apply to school board or primary elections. And again, this is it's motivated and it's modeled on what goes on in Australia. Um, in Australia, non-voters face a minimum fine that equates to about fifteen dollars in the U.S. All right, let's tee this up. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That is the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Do you think we should have mandatory voting? Do you think people should be required, for example, in two weeks, not just to choose to go to the polls, but do you think people should have to go to the polls to vote two weeks from now? The idea being, well, you know, it's this is our way of getting people more involved. This is our way of making people participate. And if we force people to go and vote and to choose candidates, what we're going to do is we are therefore going to make politicians more responsible because it's not just going to be people who um, appeal to the various special interest groups. You've got to figure out a way to tailor your appeal to everybody that might vote. Should voting be mandatory in the U.S.? 414-799-1620. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Is this a good idea? What are the upsides and what are the downsides? We'll discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 1013. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 1016. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. There's a legislator in upstate New York who wants to make voting in general elections mandatory. Um, the idea is, just like they do in Australia, where if you don't vote, you can get fined up to 15 bucks. Uh, this would be, hey, we're going to fine you up to $10. Uh, what do you think? Should voting be mandatory? Let's start with Diane in Burlington. Diane, good morning. Good morning. What do you think? What do I think? I think uh, this generation doesn't think the way our generation does. I take it as a privilege to be able to vote. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important that people look at it that way, that it is important to vote, and it's, it's a privilege. It's an honor to vote. And I don't think our generation, in today's generation, takes it that way. Well, right. See, I, I guess, Diana, thanks for calling. I'm sorry, you kind of had your radio on in the background. I think we were hearing each other in delay. The the It, it is a privilege to vote. And I guess I, I, I you're talking, I am somebody who votes in every election. I, I mean, maybe there is some uncontested primary race or something that I didn't vote in. But I mean, I but as a general rule, if you look back on my voting record, I think I voted in every election, you know, essentially since I, I turned 18 and was able to do it. I love everything that there is about voting. But at the same time, I, I think that just like you have the right to vote, you also have the right not to vote. And if you decide for whatever reason, and I, I don't I don't care about this, 
or I don't like any of the candidates, or I'm going to sit home. I think you have the right to do that as well. And while I wish everybody would educate themselves on voters and make and on politicians and make themselves a choice choices, not everybody wants to do that. And I think one of the things that comes with living in a free country is that you have the freedom to vote, but you also have the freedom not to exercise that privilege as well. Don in Milwaukee. Don, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Hi. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Thanks for calling. Um, I agree voting is a privilege, but I also agree that, yeah, you know, you should have that freedom of choice. And making it mandatory and then finding you if you don't do so yeah. is taking away your freedom of choice. This is no longer a free country if they start making some kind of laws and stuff like that. It's, it's ridiculous. Well, well, right. And the idea that, well, we're, we're, we, we think that you'll be, you know, the politicians will be more responsive. Well, no, not, not necessarily. I mean, the idea that, okay, and then to say to an individual, well, okay, you don't necessarily have to make choices, but you have to go down to City Hall on Election Day or, or absentee ballot or whatever and turn in a blank ballot. All right. Really? I mean, this last time I checked, it was the land of the free. I mean, let me yeah. make that choice as to whether I want to vote or not. I agree. It's, yeah. it's getting ridiculous the way they're coming up with these laws and right. legislation. It's ridiculous. Right. And thanks. And again, I'm I am all in favor. I I I love it when there's high turnout uh, elections. And this is me putting my partisan hat aside. And it's not like which what you know who benefits most from turnout. I mean, I think it's great when people are engaged and they want to go and they want to you know exercise their choices by again casting ballots. I love it when there's high turnout elections. I love the energy that goes with it. But at the same time, you know, if 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 you if you don't want to do it. Well, it's not like taxes. Everybody's got to pay taxes, I understand. But to me, voting is that choice. Eric and Racine. Eric, good morning. You're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning, Jeff. No, I don't I don't think voting should be mandatory and people shouldn't get fined for, for, for not going. Uh, the reason being, uh, you kind of touched on is someone goes in and turns in a blank ballot. That's not going to affect the outcome of the election. You're just getting people to show up. Right. So they don't have to pay extra money out of their pocket. And then if you get the other percentage of the people, okay, well, I already came, so I might as well fill it out. Then you just got people randomly filling out ballots that right. aren't making informed choices and could drastically be affecting the outcome of the results. And you could get a complete yeah. bonehead who has no right to be in office. Well, well that, that, that's, that's true. I mean, do we really that, – that's the other policy matter. Yes, I understand if you had like 100% voter participation, that would be outstanding. But if 40% or 45% of those voters don't care, are completely uninformed, have no idea on the issues or who they're voting for because they don't want to be there in the first place, what, you know, are, are we really having a more informed electorate? And will that necessarily lead to better, more responsive government? And I'm with you. The answer is, the answer is no. I mean, the, the way to get better government isn't to have 45% of the people who don't care and aren't don't know what they're voting for go out and vote. <laughs> it just doesn't work that exactly. way. Yeah, yep, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Now, again, this is, this, is not, this is not to suggest that, you know, voter you know, registration drives don't have a place and let's educate voters. I think you need to do everything you can within the limits of making sure that you're not, you're not inviting voter fraud and stuff like that to get people to, to choose to go to cast votes, to cast ballots. That's one thing. 
but just then saying, here, we, we want to make it mandatory for everybody to have to do it or else you're going to be fined. Give me a break. It is 1021. Coming up in three minutes, is it time to let bygones be bygones? Stick around. It's 1024, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. So glad to have you with us. Roman Polanski, Hondo, who's producing the show today and always. You know who Roman Polanski is? Roman Polanski, noted um, Polish director. Uh, Probably best-known movies, Rosemary's Baby, Chinatown. All right. Um, Also, he was... He was Mr. Sharon Tate. Sharon Tate was the beautiful actress who was murdered by Charles Manson. And uh, Polanski was out of town shooting a movie at the time. And, and actually, for a while, he, he was one of, before they identified it was Charles Manson, he was actually the one of the, the suspects in the thing. And um, it's just, I mean, just, just a brutal thing. I, how you come back from like something like that, I just... I, I just I don't know, but in any event, you know that. So that goes back, that that's sort of his history. Um, in 1977, Polanski, who was 43 years old at the time, picked up a a woman. Her name was at the time she was a 13 year old junior high school student. Her name was uh, is Samantha. Gailey, and, and she's been, the reason we mention the name now, is she's been very public over, over the years about this. Um, so he picks her up. Um, he's 43, she's 13. He brings her back to Jack Nicholson's house for a, a photo sheet shoot. She was an aspiring model, and her mother was pushing her to be a model. That's kind of the background. He gives her champagne and quaaludes, and according to the 13-year-old, he forces her to have sex with him. He's 43, she's 13, he gives her booze, he gives her pills, and they have sex. Um, he gets charged with statutory rape. This is back in 1977. Cuts a plea deal with prosecutors where he essentially pleads guilty to statutory rape. Is sent to prison for a 90-day diagnostic evaluation. Um, the judge says, okay, I want to figure out what's, what's going on here. He's released after 42 days. And prison officials say they didn't believe he needed additional prison time. All right, this story comes out, and there's this huge public response to this. Here you have this 43-year-old guy that has sex with a 13-year-old girl after drugging her, and you know, 42 days? Come on. So the, the judge then says, all right, look, here's what I intend to do. Um, he, I sent him for this 90-day evaluation. He served 42 days. I'm going to send him to jail for 48. That, that's, you know, a month and a half. So that's what the sentence is going to be. At which point in time, Polanski, rather than just going back to prison for a month and a half, hops on a flight uh, and skips, skips the country. He flees to Europe. And he has not been back in the U.S. since then. I mean, so he, he jumped bail on this outstanding case. And over the course of the last several decades, I mean, you've had this ongoing thing. And you might remember he was he was apprehended. The U.S. has been trying to get him back. They've been trying to bring him back. He was arrested, what, in Switzerland when he was there, and he was held for a while. Um, but all the while, he's been fighting extradition. So he wants to come back to the U.S. because he wants to work or, or whatever. So his attorney continues trying to cut this 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 deal and what they want the judges 
to do in, in Los Angeles is they want them to make a commitment saying this is an old case, this is 40 years old. If Roman Polanski comes back to the U.S., we want you to promise in advance that you won't send him to prison for any more time, that he won't have to do any more jail time, that all he has to do is show up and all will be forgiven. And they're trying to get a commitment from judges to that effect. Um, there was a hearing the other day, and again, Polanski's still in Europe. I mean, he, he's, he's not going back. There's a hearing the other day, and the judge who currently has this says that, you know, he's going to consider to, he's going to continue to kind of take this under advisement. Huh. 414-799-1620, 800-877-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage toll-free talk line. It's also our talk and text line. All right. It's been a long time. It's been since 1977. The guy skipped out. He has been actively avoiding extradition back to the U.S. ever since then. Now his attorney says, we want him to come back. What should happen here? Should the authority simply say, come on back, Roman, all is forgiven, it's been a long time, and if you come back, we will we will allow you to stay, and we promise you, you won't have to go to jail for any more time. Is that a good idea or a bad idea? 414-799-1620, that's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Back to discuss in just a minute, 1028. It's 1034, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Roman Polanski, convicted of statutory rape back in 1977, the, the famed director. He does 42 days in a, in a psychiatric facility, essentially. Um, he's released. The judge at the time says, well, I, I, think, I think I'm probably inclined to send him back to jail for another 48 days. He freaks out. Now, this is the guy who's convicted and committed statutory rape. He skips the country. He's been out of the country since then. Um, he, his attorneys say, well, he wants to come back in the United States, but he won't come back unless you promise up front that um, he's not going to have to serve any more jail time. What should the judge do? Bruce in Port Washington. Bruce, you're on 620 WTMJ. Hello. Hey, Jeff. Good morning. Good morning. Um, yeah, I, I would uh, drop all charges, et cetera, let him back in the country as a free man, et cetera, as long as he writes the victim a check for a quarter million dollars. Well, he has and, written the victim uh, a huge check. I don't know how much she got, ah. but he paid he, he, he paid her off a long time ago. So she, it, it, she collected a lot of money from him a long time ago. So he's okay. she she's a well, she's kind of she's kind of now punched out of this because, like I say, she was she was paid off years and years ago. Okay. So well, you still let him back in? Taking, yeah, as long I, I I would that I I would. I mean, you know, she's been taken care of. Yep. Yeah, it was a crime against citizens of the United States, and you know, you know, at the time, and and yeah, but at least right. she's been taken care of. Yeah. So, right. She yeah, no, she has. Okay. Well, thanks to call Bruce four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, maybe you're going to disagree with me, but my response is to Roman Polanski: Are you nuts? I mean, okay, I guess, look, I don't know what an appropriate sentence is, right? And and I think you can perhaps make a strong argument that, all right, the guy, he's probably in his 80s now. I should have that in front of me. But, you know, so, I mean, what 
are you really going to well right if it's 77 when he committed this so it's 40 years later yeah he's he's 80 he's 83 years old um you know are, are you really going to put him in jail in prison for a lengthy period of time i mean i i understand that you can make a strong argument saying okay it's time to just move on but but here's the point there is no way in god's green earth that if I'm a judge or I'm a prosecutor, I promise this dirtbag up front that I'm going to make that commitment. I mean, here is here is my response. If I am the judge or I'm the, the prosecutors, Mr. Polanski, if you want to resolve this case that you have fled from, you are the one who is a fugitive from justice. You have remained a fugitive from justice for the last four decades. If you and you make a compelling argument that there's nothing to be gained at this point in time, 40 years later, from putting you to prison or something like that, fine. But we are not going to reward you for jumping bail. So if you want to be in a situation where you can travel back to the United States to continue to accept awards or make movies or whatever, fine. You are going to have to come back and you're going to have to make this right, stand in front of court and take your medicine, whatever that may very well be. I mean, why why would you? I mean, seriously, um, why would you uh, say, all right, we're just going to promise this in the abstract? Aren't you then rewarding fugitives? I mean, uh, seriously. Greg writes, if we can't make him stand for his crimes, we should continue to make him live on the run. If you can do the crime, be prepared to face the consequences. Um, our text line's exploding on this. Ross writes, a crime is a crime, and regardless of how much time has passed, he needs to be held accountable. Beth on the text line says, what does the U.S. get out of the deal? An aging sex offender? No way. Leave him in Europe. Um, let's see. Hell no. Polanski drugged and raped the poor girl. He only gets a measly 90-day sentence, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I guess here's here's the, the thing. Like I say, I don't know, if I were the judge, whether I'd say that there's anything to be gained by putting the guy back in jail. But I do know that there's no reason at all to promise him up front. I mean, you are a fugitive, pal. You have made the decision to flee. You have made the decision to stay out of the United States for the last 40 years. I am not sympathetic to you. You could have resolved this at any point in time, but because you didn't have the guts to come back and you know face justice, now you want the justice system to promise you up front? I don't think so. Mike in Milwaukee. Mike, you're in 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Hi Mike. Um, the way I look at it, I mean, we're talking a little bit of a, quite a bit of a different thing here, but Nazis or murderers and a guy that's a rapist, well, they're both horrible crimes. One mm -hmm. is much more horrible, but because a man is 98 years old and has been gone for 72 years uh, from, from justice, does that make any difference? I, I mean, I, I'm not trying to say that. Oh no, no, you're right. You're talking people. about the, the you're talking about the, uh, yes. the 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 SS lieutenant who their Poland is now trying to extra trying to bring right. back the standard crime for war crimes. Yeah, he's an idea. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not trying to say that right. that's what what Polanski is. But at the same time, I'm talking about crime and justice. And yeah. I mean, so what? I don't care if it's been 40 years. Right. The man did. Basically, a very horrible crime, right. and and he, he fled. You know, right? Yeah. That's exactly. I mean, thanks. See that that to me that that's the key. He fled. He decided he did not have the guts to face sentencing and to go back for an extra forty-eight days or whatever. So he fled, and he stayed on the lam for the last forty years. All right, that that's the decision that he made. 
And again, I can't emphasize this enough. I don't know what the appropriate sentence is in a case like this. Maybe if I was the judge and I'd come back and I'd say he's 83 years old, there's nothing, the victim isn't pushing this anymore. She's been paid off. She's now an adult. There's nothing to be gained by putting Mr. Polanski in prison for an extra 30 or 40 days or a year or two years. I think you can make a very compelling argument. But why would you, why would you make that agreement up front? You're a fugitive. You have jumped bail. To me, the only response is you come back and then we'll decide what to do with you. But I'm not going to promise you something in order to get you to appear. And if you don't want to come back to the United States and appear, fine, continue to live life as a fugitive. Uh, Joe in Madison. Joe, you're on 620 WTMJ. Yeah, and just it, it's kind of interesting, though, because if I'm, you know, if I don't have the money, the monetary means to flee <laughs> Europe right. and engage in this kind of lifestyle that he's able to engage in right. what happens to me if i'm in the united states and i do the same thing and i for 10 years i'm living in mississippi and all of a sudden you know just something noxious happens right where i get stopped i'm involved in a minor accident the police officer runs my status check and right. boom the next thing i know i'm back in california wisconsin or whatever because right. i didn't have the monetary means to go and flee right and, and chances is- are you're also it's not just for the underlying crime are you going to be in trouble but you're probably going to be serving a year or two for bail jumping which well, is a big deal the, too yeah and that, that was just it you mentioned well you know what is the crime for this well the crime is is that he's he's fleed from his bail and there right. is a mandatory minimum sentence or conviction for such a crime and you know it's quite obvious what he's done um, so I just put it in context like that. It's, you know, um, he, but he's a I great mean, director. Don't you understand? It, it, this is a, this really is irrelevant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, look at look at the people. Let's say the same person flees to, uh, to Mississippi, and right. for the next ten or fifteen years, he's been a model citizen. He's worked at a job. Yeah. He's done whatever he's done. He's been a model citizen, but he had one indiscretion. And you know, is he yeah. any better or any worse than? Right somebody who makes movies right well and in the very least i mean thanks to call and i mean at the very least let, let's take your example you get somebody who does the, the same thing let's say does the same thing let's take even less significant crime i mean because statutory rape's a pretty bad thing but okay jumps bail flees um and, and okay then you're saying all right the the average person if they have their lawyers contact the prosecutor and say well i'm in touch with so and so he's been a fugitive for 10 years and and he wants to try to resolve this but he's only going to come back if you know you agree that there he's not going to be prosecuted any further for this i mean what prosecutor in their right mind what judge in their right mind would agree to that sort of thing again you bring him back you assess what the right sentence is. I don't know what that is, but the idea that you're going to let this sleaze bag come in and promise him that there's going to be no consequences in advance, I think is absolutely appalling. And even in Los Angeles, I hope they don't go that far. And if that means that the United States has to continue to be, we have to just suffer through without the presence of the guy who gave us Rosemary's Baby in Chinatown, all right. Well, we all have to make sacrifices in this world. It's 1044. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 1047. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's been he's been to two final fours and he's hoping for a third Germantown native Badgers guard. Senior guard Zach Showalter joins Scafidi and Bill Stat for a preview of the team's Sweet 16 matchup at Madison Square Garden. Don't miss their conversation today at one thirty-five. You know, interestingly enough, I think uh, 
if you look at what's happened in the the east bracket where uh, the the Badgers are playing, I think. I mean, Duke gets Duke gets taken out. I think you can make Villanova gets taken out by Wisconsin. So Villanova and Duke are gone. I think you can make a strong argument that the Badgers are as good a team left in that bracket as as anybody. Um, and to me, it, it's a complete and total horse race. South Carolina played really well in beating Duke and my Marquette team, but I, I, I think. I think that they been, they essentially had a home game or a pair of home games. I, I don't know that they're going to be able to duplicate it against Baylor. I, it's it's just going to be a real interesting thing, you know, moving forward. So I think I think would I be surprised to see the Badgers win another two and go back to the Final Four, even as an eight seed? No, they're playing really good basketball, and I think they deserve you know all the credit in the world for doing that. Okay, just just a quick observation. Um, I as as if you're a regular listener, you know I I kind of run hot and cold on, on President Trump. I I think that a number of the things that he is doing are very very good. I, I think that his appointment to the Supreme Court of Neil Gorsuch, who's getting grilled by Democrats in the Judiciary Committee, he he's going to be confirmed. Gorsuch will be confirmed. He's going to be confirmed on a 52 to 48 party line vote, and the Democrats are kind of acting out right now because they're upset. That Merrick Garland, Barack Obama's uh, nominee, didn't get didn't get a hearing. They're upset over the fact that Hillary Clinton lost the election, and they're upset over the fact that uh, well, Donald Trump is the president. So you have the left that's putting incredible pressure on the Senate in the de- senator, Democratic senators to just do everything they can to try to block this appointment. It is going to go through. Democrats need to be really careful because if they decide they're going to try to filibuster this, what's going to happen is the Republicans are going to change the rules, just like Harry Reid changed the rules, and allow it you know, uh, on an up or down vote. So that Neil Gorsuch is going to be uh, confirmed, and he should be confirmed. So th- that's – I look at you know the Trump presidency, and I say I think he's doing the right thing. I think that – Again, whatever version of the repeal and replace thing comes out of the House and goes to the Senate, I think it's going to be an improvement on Obamacare because I honestly believe that Obamacare is not sustainable moving forward. And to that end, we're scheduled to talk to uh, Speaker of the House Paul Ryan at 1145 on Thursday morning. Thursday, the way it's looking now, might be the day that the House actually votes on whatever version of the repeal and replace Obamacare is out there. But so, I, so I, I support a lot of the stuff that Trump is doing. He's now getting behind at least you know some iteration of the you know repeal and replace I, idea. But again, he continues to be, in many respects, his own worst enemy. And it was regard to not just the policy stuff, but the. The sending out the tweets. I mean, he would be so much better off. And his approval rating in one of the latest polls I was looking at, the latest Gallup poll, is down to 37%. I don't believe that's because of people's disagreement with Trump on issues. I mean, clearly controversial on some issues. But but to me, what that opinion poll reflects is the, the sort of knee-jerk nature of stuff. And there's no better example of that than this continuing controversy over – the alleged wiretapping. Now, let's kind of review the bidding here. A couple of weeks ago, on a Sunday morning at 535, President Trump takes to Twitter to accuse his predecessor, Barack Obama. And I wasn't a fan of Barack Obama, but he takes to Twitter to accuse Obama of 
of wiretapping Trump and his associates during the campaign. He alludes, this is Nixonian, you know, shame on him, this is terrible. Well, he does this with no evidence at all, other than, you know, something he heard some commentator say. You know, so, I mean, he's the leader of the free world. He throws this stuff out there. And instead of simply acknowledging that he was wrong, first of all, he shouldn't have done it in the first place, in my opinion. But secondly, you know, once this starts to blow up, instead of making it just a one-day story, instead of just saying, I've dug myself a hole, I'm going to climb out, I'm going to fill it back in, and then I'm going to move on and declare victory, you know, he continues. And so for the last couple weeks, we have had this silly story dominating the news because he refuses to back down on this claim that he has no evidence for. He's put Republicans in a very difficult situation because Republicans on the various intelligence committees, they, they who have access to this information, they, they don't have any evidence that this type of stuff happened. The Democrats have their long knives out. They are out for blood because they realize that Trump has kind of put himself out there. Now you have the FBI director, James Comey, coming in. There's a piece in the Washington Post today. President Trump faces his hardest truth. He was wrong. On the 60th day of his presidency came the hardest truth for Donald Trump. He was wrong. James B. Comey, the FBI director whom Trump celebrated on the campaign trail as a gutsy and honorable crooked Hillary truth teller, testified under oath Monday what many Americans already assumed. Trump had falsely accused his predecessor of wiretapping his headquarters during last year's campaign. Trump did not merely allege that former President Barack Obama ordered surveillance on Trump Tower, of course. He asserted as a fact and then reasserted and then insisted that forthcoming evidence would prove him right. Monday's remarkable marathon hearing of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, Comey said there was no such evidence. Trump's claim, first made in a series of tweets on March 4th, at a moment when associates said he was feeling under siege and stewing over the struggles of his young presidency, remains unfounded. And then, you know, it goes on and on and on. And as much as it pains me to agree with the Washington Post, this is one of these classic examples where sometimes you say stuff, Sometimes you do stuff and you just, you're wrong. And, and that, that happens to us all. We all make mistakes. Now, if you're the president of the United States and the leader of the free world, you, you would, I think, be perhaps a little bit more careful. But that's not his style, and that's probably not going to change. But th- this whole wiretapping thing that, that's out there, you put your aides in a situation of going out and looking ridiculous by having to defend this. You've got Republicans, again, who are you know, getting all sorts of heat, who recognize that this is just something that's completely and totally fabricated. And I understand there's some people out there who read the some of the like the alt-right stuff that says, oh, this is there, there's this stuff that happened. But at least so far, there's no reliable evidence that indicates that this happened. And the FBI director says under oath it didn't. NSA people say it didn't. And... Absent evidence to the contrary, you almost have to believe him. But this is one of these cases where, again, President Trump, for all the good stuff he does, ends up being his own worst enemy by saying these things and then refusing to back off it and making himself look ridiculous. And in the words of the great movie The Godfather, in the beginning where that movie producer you know, says to the consigliere of uh, Vito Cor- Cor- Corleone, hey, you know, 
he made a man in my position look ridiculous, and a man in my position cannot be made to look ridiculous. If you're the leader of the free world, you cannot be made to look ridiculous. And unfortunately, by sending these tweets, that's what he does. Stop tweeting. Stop with the wiretap claims, unless you're willing to produce evidence. Stop with the five million illegal people voting. Just give all that stuff up. Concentrate on the stuff you're doing that is good, and your opinion ratings, your poll numbers will go up. It's 1109. Jeff Wagner, glad to have you with us. All right. The... the there's a number of big stories going on in Washington this week. Of course, you've got, as we were talking about just a couple minutes ago, you've got the confirmation hearings in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee of uh, Neil Gorsuch. It's going to be a bloodbath, but at the end of the day, he's going to be confirmed. He will be the next justice on the Supreme Court, I'm pretty confident. Um, and then, of course, you, you've got the ongoing battle of, of Obamacare. The way it is scheduled now, the House is scheduled to vote on Thursday on the repeal and replace bill that is moving through. And there have been some changes made to um, address some of the concerns which have been you know, raised to the initial Republican proposal, showing that Paul Ryan, I think, and the people who are supporting this are sensitive to some of the concerns that are there. Um, one of the things that they are looking at doing is increasing the tax credits to senior citizens because the way the affordable care act works you can charge older people more for insurance coverage than younger people because as a general rule once you get older you have more health care demands but it's limited to i think three times as much under the proposal that's going through the house right now uh, bills could go up you could charge older people five times as much as you charge younger people and aarp and a number of people are screaming saying that's going to force seniors out of the program well what they're looking at is modifying that to add, increase tax credits to older americans to help offset the difference and so it's stuff like that they're still in the process of, of modifying this but nevertheless what you have to understand is i think in the entire history of this country once you have an entitlement program that is passed, it, it is almost impossible politically to reverse that entitlement program because people get used to it. And, and then it's the idea that, well, I've always had this. Now that I have this, you, the government, can't take this away from me. And now we have this Obamacare, which covers, you know, and which provides this insurance, even though the reality is most people still continue to get their insurance through their employers and things like that. But the idea being, you know, once you have Obamacare, once this is passed, you know, it's going to be devastating. You know, we couldn't get by without this, and we can't get rid of it, even if we put something else in its place. Now, I happen to believe that something needs to happen, because I believe that as presently constituted, Obamacare is unsustainable. You have fewer and fewer insurers who are willing to participate in the system because they are losing money hand over fist. And so the consequences have been premiums have gone up. The number of options that people who are covered under the Affordable Care Act have have gone down. And that's, I mean, I've talked to several people over the last few years who have been in the Obamacare system, and what they're telling me is that they, they got their insurance under the free market beforehand, before Obamacare, 
And in general, the response that I'm hearing from people, and these are these aren't necessarily the lowest income people, but it's that their choices have dramatically gone down and that their costs have gone up. I believe Obamacare is, in fact, in a, a spiral, um, is, in fact, in a spiral. Um, so the way the way this is happening is I, I think it, it continues to be like unsustainable. So my fear is if you do not do something and do not do something drastically, what's going to happen in the very near future is that you're just not going to have any insurers at all that are going to be participating in these exchanges because they can't make money. And that then, what is the option? Well, then the option is essentially either a single-payer insurance system or the first steps towards nationalized health care, which I happen to think would be disastrous. All right, I, I want to have a broad conversation, though, because I do appreciate how difficult it is once you have given people something, quote-unquote, from the government to then start to roll it back. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Trying to make changes to Obamacare, repeal and replace or whatever you call it, has united all sorts of people saying, oh, these are these evil Republicans who are once again you know, trying to take away this stuff and they want to have millions of uninsured. And then, of course, you have these reports from the Congressional Budget Office saying, well, you know, if you do this, there's going to be millions more people who are without insurance most of whom are going to be young people who make the decision that they're they're not going to participate in the program. But here is my question. Should we just give things up? Should we just say to President Trump and to Speaker Ryan and to Congressman Johnson and other people who are working to try to amend the system, should we just say, give it up? I mean, it's an entitlement program. Obamacare is here to stay. There's some people that like it. Just let it go. And if it turns out to be a train wreck, well, all right, we'll we'll deal with it then. We'll move to nationalized health insurance or single payer or whatever. Or should we tell them, stick to your guns. What we've got now isn't working. You've got to figure out a way to fix it. 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Do we really need to take on Obamacare, or is it a bridge too far? We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 1115. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ on Thursday. The House of Representatives is scheduled to vote on some version of repeal and replace. We're scheduled to talk to Speaker of the House Paul Ryan at 1145 on Thursday. But but here's here here's the deal. Um, a lot of people are just saying, oh, no, no, this is terrible. It, it's going to be awful. Just leave Obamacare alone. My concern is that I believe Obamacare is unsustainable. I believe it is a train wreck. I believe that very, very soon the people who are in it are going to find almost no choices for insurance. I think the system's going to collapse. And candidly, without going too far down the conspiracy rabbit hole, I think a lot of people that devised this knew the system was going to collapse with the idea being, okay, this is our way of forcing this country into nationalized health insurance or single payer or whatever. Let's start with Dave in Waukesha. Dave, good morning. Hey, Jeff, how you doing? Real well, thank you. What do you think? Well, definitely got to fix it. First of all, first and foremost, if nothing else, the Republicans all campaigned on it. Yep, <laughs> for years, I mean, for six years, it, yes. It'll be, it'll be an absolute, I mean, granted, they could have, you know, spent some of that time coming up with something, you know, already in hand that would, that would you know, address the issue, but that, that said, 
So that that's number one. And number two is, you know, definitely, you know, the way it currently is, it, you're right, it's, it's unsustainable. And really, when you think about it, look at the VA. <laughs> yeah. it's, just, it's a train well, wreck. You know, I mean, it's, it's not going to, there's no way in the world. I mean, it, just, it needs to be, you, you can't just put your head under the covers and just hope it goes away. I mean, it, it's got to be fixed. Well, be well right. And, and see, and I guess one of the things that frustrates me, Dave, is we, we've taken that attitude towards other entitlement programs like Social Security, for example, for years and years. That That's a train wreck, too. But at least... The, the day of reckoning for Social Security is, is probably another decade off. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't address it right now because I think that we should. But the, the the train wreck from Obamacare, I, I think I think it's just a couple years off. I mean, you just yeah. look at how these exchanges are working right now. Well, look at I mean, I think I think uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield announced that they're going to be pulling out at the end of next year. Right. And I mean, some of these states only have one choice. Right. Right, when zero. Then what? <laughs> well, no. That that's that's exactly the, the situation that people you know that, that people find themselves in, um, and and again, because the, 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 again the problem is the penalties the the underlying problem is that the penalties for not participating are so small that people aren't participating in their they're not paying enough to cover all the costs that these insurers have for the sick people who are in the system now, and as a result, they're losing money. And I just don't see any way out of that. You've got to do something. I'm not smart enough to know if this is the perfect solution, but I know what we have now doesn't work. Well, they, they, already, they already announced this year, the IRS did, that they're not going to be uh, line 61 on your, on your, uh, on your, on your 1040. If you, don't, if you don't have proof of insurance, they're not going to go after you. So they're really weakening it themselves. Right. Well, right, exactly. I mean, right. Thanks. For, I mean, see, these you know, these are all those different type of problems. And look, I'm going to be the first to acknowledge that there were problems with the the old health care system, um, primarily the idea of pre existing coverage that you could have had insurance all your life, you lose your job, your spouse loses you know his or her job, all of a sudden you're uninsurable, or you get stuck in these high risk pools where the costs are so are just prohibitively expensive, and you, you get a diagnosis of cancer or whatever. You've got these catastrophic bills that are coming in, and, and you can't find you know reasonably placed insurance. I understand that you have to address that, but I guess my concern all along has been: wasn't there a way we could address it without blowing up the system? Uh, let's talk to Pat in Franksville. Pat, you're on six twenty WTMJ. Good morning. Hi, Pat. I was just curious with the proposed language for the the new right. uh, program. Is Congress going to be part of that? Are they going to exempt themselves like they did for ACA? <laughs> that's a that's a very interesting question, and I don't know the answer off the top of my head. But I tell you what. When I have the opportunity to talk to the Speaker of the House, I will make sure – I'm making a note right now. I will make sure to ask that question. Will Congress be covered by this just like the American people are? <laughs> fair yes. enough. Now, thank, yes. thank, fair enough. No, I think that, – because that, that's, a, that's a fair sort of thing. Now, one of the other things that, again, gets lost in this entire discussion is that the people who are in these exchanges, who are covered under the Affordable Care Act – that is still a small minority of the people who get insurance. Most people in this country um, who are under the age of 65, we're not talking about Medicare, mo- most people continue to get their insurance through their, their employers. And one of the things that ha- has not 
one of the things that I was afraid of when we first had Obamacare that hasn't happened to the extent that I was afraid it was going to happen is that uh, private employers dropping insurance coverage. That was one of my big fears that you would have insurers, uh, private employers who would say, okay, we're just going to pay the penalty and we're going to dump a lot of our employees onto these exchanges where you have limited options and higher deductibles. But, I mean, you hear these horror stories about people who are in these these different exchanges where you've got astronomical premiums and you've got incredibly high deductibles you know, that make it likely that absent some sort of catastrophic thing, they're, they're not going to be able to collect. Plus, you've got no choices on your doctors. You know, something has to be done, not just from the politics of it. Um, and somebody... I acknowledge, you know, as, as you try to change some sort of entitlement program, somebody is probably going to be on the losing end of it. But the big picture is you've got an unsustainable system. Unless you do something, it's going to be a train wreck. Tom in Watertown. Tom, good morning. Morning, Jeff. Say, I say keep the ACA, but I think that they have to. it has to be revised. They have to have something in place where it has to be worked on. I don't have it for myself, but I had to get it for my wife because she works part-time. Right. But I'll tell you, I worked hard and long all my life to get insurance, and I finally got my wife insurance now, and she needs to keep this. The thing that I would say is the Republicans and the Democrats, if they would just start dismantling this thing and start figuring out where it needs to be worked on, Mm -hmm. they could both work as a party together, because then the Democrats would come together with the Republicans and work on it. (laughs) Tom, are you taking prescription medication now? (laughs) No, no, no. I I mean, right in an ideal world, that that's what would be the the case. (laughs) Thanks for. I was just kind of kidding you around about that because I mean, it's like, all right, this is in an ideal world. You're right. You would sit there and say, okay, what what do we need? What do we need to do? And how can we work out a system that gives people, you know, these different choices that are out there? Um, and, and allows them to make their own choices, but also allows them their different options. I mean, I feel really, really bad for people who are stuck in the Obamacare system where, where you don't have the different choices. You have one health care insurer that's out there. That insurer has cut a deal with, you know, one different provider. So you can't go to your doctor of your choice. You can't say, hey, I want to go into this net. I want to go to this hospital network as opposed to another one, um, even though the other one might be a lot closer or might be a lot better or, or whatever. I mean, that's to, to me, that's bad, and it's going to end up getting worse. Uh, Mitch and Sturgeon Bay writes, Jeff, you are not a conspiracist. The Obamacare architects and the few Dems knew what was in the bill and knew it would fail, leading to single player, payer, which was their goal all along. I, I firmly do, I do believe that because what we're seeing now is just unsustainable, and it was predictable that it was unsustainable as well. Um Lisa, actually, in Wind Lake says, you know, we, we need to, you know, we need to figure out a way to, you know, rein this in. They should take Obamacare off the table and then evaluate what makes health care so expensive. Start with pharmaceuticals. No medication should cost this much. You have to have the stuff, you know, reined in. What we're doing now isn't working. And I guess I, I don't agree that you can take Obamacare off the table because if you just let this go on, well, two or three years from now, it's going to be a lot worse. The devil is always in the details. I thought 
the the plan that Paul Ryan came out with originally it was a good plan, and I think, but it's something that the devil is in the details. They're starting to modify these things. Um, I think that something needs to be done. It needs to be a priority, and I reject the idea that just because you have an entitlement program put in place, that means that it always has to exist, whether it works or not. Eleven twenty six, Jeff Wagner, six twenty, WTMJ. It's 1128, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Um, As part of the replacement for Obamacare, there's another, well, there's another provision which has become, at least in the eyes of some, controversial. One of of the things that I I think embodies a Republican philosophy is that these various entitlement programs should be well, should be safety nets, not not hammocks. <laughs> and and one of the things that the Republicans are doing is suggesting that if you are able-bodied, if you are able to work, you should work. And as a condition of receiving public assistance, you should either be working, or you should be training for a job. Um, or, uh, again, just working towards that job. But the idea of just kind of like sitting around not and collecting these benefits without trying to better yourself has always been something that Republicans have not liked at all. So one of one of the and this and this is the way The Washington Post writes the headline. Republicans threaten to deny poor people medical care if they aren't working. Republicans threaten to deny poor people medical care if they aren't working. Now, you could write the headline another way. The headline would be, Republicans say, as a condition of requiring and getting medical care, able-bodied people should work. But that's not the way they present it. When we come back after the news, I want to talk about this work requirement. And my question to you is, is this really so appalling? It's 1134, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ with Eddie Lacey in Seattle and the running back market market out of demand. Is it time for the Packers to take another look at Adrian Peterson? Greg Matzik says no way. Greg is a smart man. What do you think? That's tonight on Sports Central at 607. Last thing the Packers need, in my opinion, is a 30-some-year-old guy coming off a catastrophic injury. Uh, no, I think that maybe running back in the NFL is a young person's thing. All right, the, the reason why. Work requirements are typically attached to public assistance program, entitlement programs. There's two reasons. First, um, proposal like Medicaid, for example, was really never intended to be an entitlement for able-bodied adults. And it, it's this fair, it's this, this idea of, of fairness. I mean, if you want to... If you want to qualify for these entitlement programs, again, if they're not going to be, we, we don't want them to be, we want them to be a safety net, we don't want them to be a hammock. So it's not fair, number one, to just allow people to, who are otherwise able to work, it's not fair to allow them to collect benefits from the government that other people don't without even trying to work. Secondly, and this is where it gets a little bit trickier, there are a number of people who do the math. And what they find is, gee, if we go to work and we actually start making money, 
well, soon it might not be worth our while because maybe we're going to make too much money to qualify for these, these free government programs. So there's actually a disincentive to go to work. You have a system which encourages people to stay on the dole. Both of those things are bad. So what they're talking about doing is for able-bodied Americans, in order to receive publicly funded health insurance through Medicaid, you would have to work or be looking for work or be in some sort of training program to get work, similar to what, you know, they're doing with other sort of programs, you know, across the country. But they would apply this to health insurance. Now, it would not apply to people who have child care responsibilities. But if you've got, for example, a healthy 28-year-old woman who is able to work, the question becomes, should that person at least be required as a condition of getting this health insurance and getting all the subsidies that go with it, shouldn't they be out there trying to look for a job? I mean, is that really that unreasonable? 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, again, this is the way, for example, lefty publications like the Washington Post uh, frame this. Republicans threaten to deny poor people medical care if they aren't working. Well, what the Republicans are saying is, yeah, you should be out there looking for a job in order to have government paid for health insurance. Is that unreasonable? 414 799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let's start with Mary in Pewaukee. Mary, you're first. Good morning. Good morning, Jeff. What do you think? When I was that 28-year-old woman, I was a young married with three children, and I made a deliberate choice, a deliberate choice at that time. I chose to be a stay-at-home mom so that there would be jobs for people who needed the jobs. And instead, I became a volunteer and volunteered for well over 50 years. Mm -hmm. Our former president told us for a number of years in a row that the cost of living has not gone up, and therefore Medicare premiums were not going to be going up either and which they didn't and it's getting very difficult for people like me pushing 80 uh to live mm-hmm. from paycheck to paycheck right and yet we worked yeah we didn't get paid for it but we worked right right no exactly mary thank, thanks for calling see and that's See, that, that's the thing. It's a question of, uh, again, it's it's fundamental fairness. Nobody's talking about your situation, you know, where, where you are now. But I understand your, your costs are going up. And the idea is if you've got, again, that, I'm using the example, 28-year-old woman, 28-year-old man, whatever, doesn't have child care responsibilities, is physically able to work, but is making the decision under the present system that, gee, I, I just don't want to work. Or if I work, I might actually start making money, and then I, I might have to start contributing to my health care so it's easier for me just to stay home. It, it, that's We never want to have, I, I think, as a policy matter, you never want to have, you never want to incentivize having people stay on the dole. And, and that's 
that's what you know we're essentially doing. Now, I'm not coming out and suggesting that you, you pull people's health insurance or food stamps or, or whatever if they're not able to get a job, but at least putting in some requirements saying you've got to be looking for work. You've got to be out there doing that. Um, and I understand there's probably some people who are going to be able to scam the system. I, I get that. But we one of the things we saw when we had the really high unemployment a few years ago, remember when we were looking at like 8, 9, 10% unemployment, and we kept extending unemployment benefits. You know, typically unemployment benefits would last for six months, but because we were going through the recession and all, you know, in some states, you, you could stay essentially on unemployment for up to two years. And then what was happening, miraculously, after unemployment ran out, you had Lots and lots of people who suddenly found jobs. Not everybody, but lots and lots of people who suddenly found jobs. Why? Because they knew that they had to. There was no longer this ability to make the decision, gee, if I don't look for a job for a while, okay, I'm going to make two-thirds. I'm, I only make a third more. If I have to work, I'd rather stay home and play video games. And I understand that doesn't cover everybody. But do you ever want to create a system where there's an incentive not to work? Brenda in the Wisconsin Dells. Brenda, you're on 620 WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. I'm just calling to say that I agree 100% with this. I work in a community where there is 40 hours available for anybody that wants to work in the resort community. I have great benefits, full life of them, right. care of life, 401k, and most of the people that I work with only want to work part-time so they don't lose their food stamps and their badger care. Right, Something so- has to be done that if somebody is employed that you need to contact the employer and say, hey, is 40 hours available? If the answer is yes, they need to be cut off. So in your situation, you see all these people who are able to work more. Um, the employers perhaps want them to work more, but they're sitting there saying, gee, if I work that extra five hours a week, I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to have to pay more or I might lose some of this stuff. So they're essentially incentivized to stay on the dole. Absolutely. 40 hours is available to every employee, and... The ones that I work with only want to work part-time so right. they don't lose their benefits. Right, and again, and, we, and we're just so we're clear, too, Brenda, we're not talking about people who have, for example, medical issues that would stop them from working or, you know, huge child care responsibilities. We're talking about able-bodied adults who could do what, you know, other people do, but the system has created this incentive for them not to. Absolutely. They're adults between the ages of 25 and 50, um, and they refuse to work, and I work about 80 hours a week at two jobs because life happens and bad things have happened to me. Sure. And I could sign up for welfare, too, but I don't. I refuse to. Well, I mean, thank, see, there's nothing, there, there is nothing wrong. I, I mean, I appreciate that there is a role for the various type of public assistance programs we have. I'm not calling for those the elimination of that, but I do think it is fair to say that we, we want to create a system that is aimed towards getting people off of the dole, not allowing people to get too comfortable staying on these various entitlement programs. And if that means, as a condition of doing that, you have to be working or have to be, you know, looking for work, that then then that's fine. And I know there's a lot of people out there that fit right into that category. Keith in Brandon. Keith, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Morning, Jeff. What do you think? Well. I've been off work for three and a half years. Can I ask you how old you are? Sixty. Sixty. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> people, uh, people in your age bracket have, to the extent there's been a, a recovery, mm-hmm. it, it hasn't. It hasn't hit people in your in your age bracket. I know that's it's mm-hmm. tough. It's tough to be sixty out there looking for a job. Right. Um, I have applied in the last three and a half years. I've applied for 
And some of these are the same company, but they're different jobs. Um, I've applied for over 400 jobs. Yep. And I'm physically capable. I've been to, I don't know, I think I've got 30-some certificates or 25 certificates, plus I'm a licensed electrician. Um, I'm capable of working on farms. Right. And I've had farms, farm friends of mine that all they hire is Hispanics. Now, I've got nothing against Hispanics. Most of them are my, a lot of them are my friends uh, because I grew up in the food industry. Right. And, but they won't hire a white person. Now, I can breed cows, I can milk cows, I can work in the fields, I can pull calves, and I can't get a job even doing that. Well, see, and, and that's, that's one of the big concerns with the dairy industry is, um, you know, that nobody wants to do it. Well, what do you think's going on? Is, you think you're being discriminated against because of your age, Keith? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, but you're, you're, I mean, you're, you're telling me, I mean, seriously, you've applied for over 400 jobs and you just can't, you're just not getting a sniff at anything, huh? Well, I get, I get interviews. Right, sure. I do get interviews, but then that's as far as it goes. Right. And see, I guess just, I mean, and, and, I mean, thanks for calling. And here, here, I guess, look, I got a couple comments. First of all, for people in your situation, I, and, and, I'm, I'm not, and I don't mean to imply, and I certainly don't think I have, that you know that everybody who's been long-term unemployed um, is a malinger. I, I don't believe that to be the case. And the way I understand these proposals is people who are, and I understand it, it. My God, if I was looking for three years under those situations and kept getting turned down, I understand how discouraging it would be. But I don't understand. My understanding is that people who are out there, you know, pounding the pavement, continuing to look for work. Your your benefits would not be in danger. The, the people that would need to worry are the folks that aren't actively looking for work because they've simply made the decision that, hey, if I take a job, um, pretty soon I'm going to make a little bit of money, then I'm going to lose the free stuff. So, I mean, and I, I do... I do. This is kind of a little bit off topic, but it's my show, so I'll go off topic. I am sympathetic to the situation you're talking about, Keith, because, like I say, to the extent there's been an economic recovery, um, the, the people and the jobs are starting to come back. It's it's difficult to prove, but you will you you know, I, I got to believe that they're not supposed to be able to discriminate by age. But I got to believe you have a lot of people that walk into employers, and if you're 55 or you're 60. Even though you've got all these skills and you're able to do the job, lots of employers are going to say, oh, let's go with the person who's like 30 because maybe they'll be there for a lot longer. And it's very difficult to prove that. But um, just anecdotally, that's kind of how I feel. It's 1146, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 1150, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It is, you, you hear the term McCarthyism thrown around. Matter of fact, there's a real interesting book that just came out last week that I, I have not picked up yet, but I intend to, about uh, Eisenhower and Eugene McCarthy and, and how, you know, Eisenhower hated McCarthy, just, just not Eugene McCarthy, uh, Joseph McCarthy. I'm back in 1968, and, and Joseph McCarthy, and how Eisenhower just really hated McCarthy and worked behind the scenes to undermine him and actually help contribute to his fall back in 1954. And I'm fascinated to kind of read the book. But you hear that term thrown around a lot about the, the, the smear efforts and things like that. You are seeing, I think, in this country a new McCarthyism, and, and it's playing out in, in, in reverse. And it's playing out on, on college campuses where, 
Now, one of the most dangerous places to be nowadays, um, just politically and in some cases physically, is is if you are a conservative on, on college campuses. There's there was a story I, I this was in uh, the College Fix just the other day. All right, Saint Olaf College, a Lutheran liberal arts school in Minnesota. Apparently, um, in the surprise of you know nobody, it's a liberal arts school. Um, in in the election in 2016. Um, four in five students at St. Olaf College voted for Hillary Clinton. Um, Trump drew one in ten. So, I mean, it's just, it's overwhelmingly lefty. And what's happened is the, the conservative students, the ones that are willing to be public on campus, have just been marginalized and in many cases threatened. I mean, here, here's the story. Student newspaper, the Manitou Messenger, writes... Of 12 students interviewed by the paper, several have been violently threatened because of their political beliefs, and almost all of them feel as though they can't speak up about politics on campus, in class, online, or with their friends. On the night of the election, on the night of the election, a, a student in the union um, threatened to beat up the president of the college Republicans, calling her a blanking moron. Over the next couple of days, she overheard multiple students threaten to hurt the next conservative Republican they saw. One student after another after another felt that this was the, the case. And the, the paper concludes by saying, it's lonely being a conservative at St. Olaf, even though the college Republican chapter didn't endorse Donald Trump and refused to phone bank for him in the general election. Um, what's going on is you have conservative students now on the campus who are essentially they're, they're being forced into the closet because, you, you know, you, you, you can't come out. You can't have a political discussion because you are going to be threatened. You're going to be marginalized, whatever. You know, I, I remember, I am old enough to remember, you know, the free speech type of stuff. And when college campuses were at least places where you could go and you could debate ideas. Well, now, unfortunately, th- those days are over. You can debate ideas, but only if they are ideas from the left. How sad is that? And this, I think, is the new McCarthyism.